Hi, this is Steve Bose. Before we get to today's HR Happy Hour show, which is a conversation with Peter Capelli, the director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, I would like to thank our show sponsors for today. First off, thanks to Work Human. The world is watching the leaders of today and tomorrow. Modern employees want a workplace where they're respected, seen, appreciated, heard, and they are demanding it. Employees have the right to a human workplace, and you have the power to create one. Thriving organizations like Cisco, Merck, and LinkedIn have realized the immense benefits of putting the human at the center of work. Get your copy of the book, Making Work Human, on Amazon and discover how. I'd also like to thank our friends at Paychex, one of the leading providers of HR, payroll, retirement, and insurance solutions for businesses of all sizes. While 2020 has challenged HR leaders like never before, they continue to play an important strategic role in their organizations while also fueling efficiency, building culture, and developing teams using the latest technology and tools available. The fourth annual 2020 Paychex Pulse of HR survey provides an in-depth look at how HR professionals are contributing to the success of the companies they serve with nearly 9 in 10 saying they have a voice in overall company strategy. Go to Paychex.com slash Pulse 2020 today to download your copy of the 2020 Paychex Pulse of HR Survey Report and learn how your peers are transforming the HR function within their organizations, from improving employee engagement to evolving company perks and more. So thanks to Work Human and Paychex, and let's get on with the show. Please uh, enjoy this conversation I had with Peter Capelli. Welcome to the HR Happy Hour Show. My name's Steve Bo. So great to be with you today. Super excited about today's show uh, with our, a very special guest I've wanted to have on the HR Happy Hour for a long time. We're finally glad we're able to welcome him. Our guest today is Professor Peter Capelli. He's the George W. Taylor Professor of Management and Director of the Center for Human Resources at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. He's the author of several books, including Will College Pay Off? A Guide to the Most Important Financial Decision You'll Ever Make. Welcome, Professor Capelli, to the HR Happy Hour Show. How are you today? I'm just happy. Thank you. Pleasure you know, being with you. Great to have you. And now I just read this bio. I need to go out and get that book, uh, Professor, because I have a son who's a freshman right now at Boston University. Yep. And I really wish I would have read that book before I, I embarked <laughs> on that journey with him. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, it doesn't. Uh, I, here's the punchline, so you don't have to buy it. I'll just okay. The punchline is there's a real difference between asking, do college graduates make more money, where the answer is clearly yes, and asking, does it pay for an individual kid to go to college? And the answer there is it depends, right? right. And the big reason is a lot of kids never graduate. And you go to college and you never graduate, then that for sure is not going to pay off. Right? Yeah, that's probably the worst outcome between going and graduating, mm -hmm. not going at all, and pursuing some other endeavor, right? And, and then sure, because you still have the loans, right? You have to I'll carry those loans. You spent the time in college, and you don't get any bang from it. Right? Yeah. So you can. That's the best thing is can you predict your odds on graduating, depending where you go and depending majors? And yes, you can do that. So all right. Well, I think I, I think that's still worthwhile. You know, I don't want to get okay. into all that. Hold on. That's actually not the subject of the show today. But uh, when I read it in the bio, I'm like, oh, man, that's super interesting to me just because of, of where I'm at right now. And especially with pandemic and sort of the, the value you may or may not be receiving from from some of these yes. educational yes. kind of experiences. But yeah, that's another show. Maybe we'll have to figure out a way to have you back on to talk about that. Okay. Today, we wanted to talk about uh, this idea of optimization in the workplace and kind of over engineering and really anchored to a piece uh, recently published in Harvard Business Review 
called Stop Over Engineering People <laughs> Management came out in the September, October 2020 issue of HBR. First of all, Professor, I'd love for you to just kind of tell us a little bit about what was the impetus behind you saying, like, I'm going to spend a lot of time in research and write this really long piece in, in HBR about over-engineering people management and optimization of, of workers and workplaces. What, what made you say, I think this is something worth my, my time to explore? Okay. And first, Steve, that's the cover story. Oh, oh right. Man. Okay. I yeah, just, yeah I got the printout story. here. So, okay, nice. Cover yeah, story. There you go. Yeah. And the reason that matters is, you know, this is not the place where you see a lot of HR stuff. Um, so I was uh, really pleased that they thought this was topic was important enough to merit, uh, you know, a bigger coverage. So that was good. Um, I think, you know, some of this started with work we've been doing on artificial intelligence and just trying to look to see what was happening with human resources. But it started to see something that started to look like a pattern. And uh, the pattern was across different aspects of management. Uh, you started to see this push on optimizing, you know, that, uh, which doesn't sound like a bad thing. Right. It sounds like, okay, efficiency, let's be optimal, right? Um, but the problem is that by optimizing, we're also thinking about taking power away from the employees, right? So it's part of a way of thinking about people and thinking about them more as widgets than as humans and that optimizing in practice when they're talking about people is about minimizing right mm -hmm. trying to use as few people as possible but also cutting them out of the picture so that you don't make decisions yourself you don't make decisions with your supervisor um, teams don't be empowered in quite the same way because we got algorithms that'll tell you what to do and uh, we've got software of other kinds that'll make those decisions for you so you don't have to do anything so it's sounding more like the 1920s and you know listeners who remember scientific management and ford motor company assembly lines and that sort of stuff is it's harkening back very much to that idea um, and there are lots of reasons that look very much like the 1920s for making that happen yeah and that was kind of the next uh question I had or just observation I wanted to bring up is it's it's like a pendulum that seems like it's moving much more towards very what we would maybe describe as really old-fashioned or antiquated ideas about how to organize work and manage work and workforces and after a good long run and you talk about it in the article a good four decade run right of organizations really trying to empower employees engage them in decision making and kind of and kind of improve their um prove their position in the organization, right? To give them more of a stake in the game. And I wonder what, what your thoughts are about why do you think it's kind of shifting back to those older kinds of notions? Yeah, and, and that is a you know really important question. And it's not one we can easily nail down, but we can see a bunch of things happening in the broader business community, right? And you know, one of the problems we have in human resources is that it isn't clear that uh, human resource people drive the HR agenda. And maybe that's not a bad thing. We don't necessarily want marketing people driving marketing agendas by themselves. Um, you want people at the very top of the organization thinking about that. Well, the people at the top of organizations are different now than they were even 20 or 30 years ago, right? So the finance orientation is bigger. Uh, finance people are basically applied economists. Um, they think about optimization. You know, economics is all about that really. 
Um, and we see a huge number of engineers now running companies. I, I was just stunned to see, you know, by some measures, it's about a third okay. of CEOs have engineering backgrounds. And they're only 6% of college graduates. So there's something really disproportionate going on there. And engineering, you know, is about optimization. And, you know, optimization is a great thing when you're talking about lots of aspects of business. When you talk about people, though, you know, people are much more complicated, as we know, and as you were describing, we've had this long run of theory Y thinking, right? Yeah. Theory Y was the opposite of theory X. Theory X was the engineering approach. People are rational. They're going to shirk. If you don't watch them, you got to punish and reward them or they're not going to behave. And theory Y was, wait, people are more complicated. They might actually want to do a good job. They might have good ideas. And if you ask them uh, for their input, they probably going to care more about it. And we ought to try to work on that. Mm -hmm. So the engineering approach to this is to focus on this theory why idea and, and they don't know much about theory why yeah um, so they just don't know much about it they aren't taught it in schools and lots of companies now even big ones are still being run by founders and those folks a lot of those folks were engineers they started their companies they didn't learn anything about theory why stuff in college nor did they ever get it in management training programs right so a generation ago, even at companies like engineering companies like GE, as soon as you were hired there, you were put through all this training about how to manage people. Those programs are gone, right? Even in the big companies, they're gone. So you're increasingly seeing people running these companies who are engineers in their orientation. Mm -hmm. That's been their work experience. Now they're making decisions about how management should work. And the other thing that's happened is the way companies run, the CEOs are way more powerful than they used to be. Used to be they managed committees, they managed departments that had autonomy. The HR head would be telling you how things work in HR. And now the CEO is driving it from the top, right? So there's a bunch of things going on that are all pointing us in the same direction. Finance orientation, focusing on money, which you can optimize. And now artificial intelligence, which we might talk about in some more detail, is giving it an extra push. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point that's uh, made in the article, which is the preponderance of uh, organizational leaders who have those those scientifically more uh, rigorous backgrounds, whether it's engineering, whether it's finance, or in very few, it's, it's, it's big news, right, uh, Professor, when uh, the head of HR gets elevated to the CEO role, say, in, in a large corporation. It, it happens, I think, fairly infrequently. And because I think when it does happen, it, it does seem to be news, newsworthy. And um, so that's, uh, that's definitely an interesting uh, observation. Yeah, you mentioned AI, right? So, uh, you know, people listen to the show know I've been involved in the HR technology conference for the better part of 10 years now, right? And helping to put that together. And if there's one thing that's happened in human resources technology, and I'm not talking about just the biggest companies either. I'm talking about from A to Z, right, in the, in the, in the technology provider space who are providing software for things like uh, that we're talking about, managing people and scheduling people and helping uh, understand how to get the most out of people, et cetera. The one term I've heard the most, right, in the last five, seven years has been AI and artificial intelligence. It's being applied or it's attempted, it's, it's being attempted to be applied just everywhere in the whole life cycle of the employee right now through, through largely through these technology providers. Peter, I'd love for you to maybe tell us a little bit about your thoughts about how AI is being implemented uh, and how it's kind of contributing to this idea of that we're, 
or maybe going too far with optimization, particularly when it, when it matters uh, for the worker. Yeah, and I may have actually learned this from you, Steve, but I heard this statistic that the average HR person gets like seven pitches a day from AI companies. I would so, believe it, yep. Uh, yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's a number of reasons for this. One is CFOs in particular really like the idea of buying something that would get rid of people <laughs> because they really don't like employment expenses for all kinds of reasons. Uh, which have to do with financial accounting, and some of them are nutty, but nevertheless they are. And so if you can promise them that uh, what you're buying here is something that will eliminate people, you can get authority for that. Yeah. If you're going to tell them, look, I need more people, forget it. They don't want to give you a headcount. But they'll give you money to get rid of headcount, and that's part of what AI promises. The other thing that I think is happening is the consulting world and the vendors themselves have become way more powerful, uh, way bigger, and they dominate the conversation. Right? So when I was younger and started, if you want to know what was going on in human resources, you tried to go talk to the heads of human resources of the biggest companies because they were kind of driving everything. Everybody's watching them. And now it's the vendors who yeah. drive everything because they got the budgets, they got the marketing machines, et cetera, right? And uh, that's where you know, the AI is coming from, it's coming from vendors, a lot of them doing cool things, a lot of them pretty sophisticated, some of them not. And the thing about these vendors, we're talking about engineers before, um, most of these companies that specialize in this stuff are started by data scientists. They're not started by HR people. And data scientists know, like when they start anyway, zip about human resources, right? right. And your listeners probably will resonate with this one. For a while, I was getting a call about once a week from some engineering graduate, usually a Stanford engineering graduate, who told me they had this employment thing figured out. Yeah. You know, they had an app that was going to solve this stuff. And I would just ask him each time, I'd just say the same thing. I said, have you thought about whether this is legal or not? <laughs> and they said, no, should I? And I said, yeah, you should. Go talk yeah. to a lawyer. And then I typically never heard from him again, right? So the people starting these companies uh, don't know much of anything about human resources. And a lot of it is fundamental things like law, uh, but more generally, they don't get the fairness questions that, and the empowerment questions, which are kind of embodied in the theory why approach. Right. So they're thinking about optimization because that's the way data science works. It is, give me something to optimize against, right? And it might be in hiring, let's see where most of the money is these days, right? Um, it might be, how do we find the attributes of candidates that are most associated with people who've done well before? Mm -hmm. That's sure. what machine learning does. They generate the algorithm and off they go. And it's an optimization exercise, right? So that's the way they think about things. And the problem with using those algorithms, that there's, there's many problems. Uh, there's some terrific things about them. It is quite possible they might actually be less biased than what humans are doing, partly because we're not training people how to make hiring decisions and things like that anymore. We're just letting people go with their gut. They're lousy at that. Right? So when you're competing against something really lousy, it's easy to be to be better. They could be better in, in lots of ways, but they do a couple of things which are quite fundamental. They take decision-making away from the people who are making it before. So the hiring manager now might have no influence whatsoever in the hiring decision. 
maybe you're going to hire somebody who is, you know, more qualified and it may actually end up being better, but the hiring manager doesn't like them. They're not committed to the hire. They don't care about them. And you're off to a worse start. Right. right? Particularly when we think about things like scheduling, the uh, advantage of having the employees do it is they can incorporate their own quirky needs and they can negotiate with each other's solutions. So they're participating in the process. Even if they got to exactly the same outcome that the algorithm got to, they're going to like it much better because they built it. They played around with it. They tried it. They got something that they created. They're committed to it. If you have an algorithm, just drop it on them. You can't do that. Yeah. The third part of that is that you know, one of the things we've kind of learned from the behavioral sciences is that a lot of employment relationship and a lot of performance is built on this relationship between the supervisor and their subordinates, right? And the way this gets done is lots of little deals with each other. They call it social exchange in sociology. Sure. And I do a favor for you, you do a favor for me. Yeah, I, I need this shift off. Can you swap with me? Those kinds of things, right? Like, yeah. Right. And, yeah. right. and I'll help you out this weekend on a shift if you can do this for me now. Well, once you turn over the shift scheduling to an algorithm, you can't do any of that anymore. And so let's say I'm scheduled three weekends in a row to work on the dock or something, right? And I used to come to my supervisor and I would scream at her about this. And she'd say, okay, sorry, next weekend, I promise you can have it on. Who do I scream to now, right? So I go to my supervisor, I scream at her and she says, well, look, here's the number of the programmer who wrote the software. Right. Yell at this guy, right? Yeah. You can't do anything for me. There are fairness issues that come up all the time. Look, I'm getting married next weekend. Sorry, the algorithm says, you you know. Yeah, and you, you start to get deals, into, right, right on the scheduling side. I've seen, I've seen, you know, pitches actually from some of the software companies that make these scheduling tools that say, oh, well, we can show you how the optimal mix of associates shifting you know, in the store, say on this shift, it might yield one and a half percent more revenue on average. That's what we think will happen, right? Mm -hmm. If you put these six people together, you know, for four hours together. And that's sometimes I think to myself, how can you possibly know that? Like that, okay, maybe, maybe. But if two of those six people are very important team members and, and valued contributors and loyal employees, they always show up on time, et cetera, right? And they, they, they need some accommodation for whatever reason. And you as the manager, the shift leader can't give it to them the algorithms can't take any of that into account, right? What that means to that relationship, right? And how that, that relationship's going to evolve. So I think, I think that's a super point. Um, I, I do want to ask about another element that you talk about in the, in the paper, um, which is the uh, increase in the use of contract workers, gig workers, temporary workers, et cetera. And this idea that's become in vogue over the last, oh, maybe it's been in vogue for longer than we think, but certainly in the last decade or so, this idea that we need to be more flexible, more agile, more fluid. Let's tap yeah. into more flexible labor markets to increase staffing when we need it. And then when we don't need it, if things are not going so well, or we're going into a different type of business, it's much easier to cut the ties with these folks versus say a full-time regular employees, right? That's very traditional kind of employee, employee relationship management. But you point out in the paper, there's some, there's some downsides of this. And I'd love for you maybe to talk just a little bit about that and, and what you found as you think about organizations increasing their use of these kinds of contingent uh, workforces. Yeah. And uh, speaking of agile, there's just an interesting example as to how that has changed. So agile bursts on the scene in the world of software, the agile manifesto in 2001, it was about project management. And it turned out that, you know, this is really about radically empowering teams. 
And if you do that, you don't need to do planning. You don't have to do financial planning. You just give them what they need when they need it. It's quicker, it's cheaper, it's faster. Well, what has happened in the last couple of years is that Agile has been redefined. So the problem with that Agile for finance people is you cut the CFOs out of the picture altogether because you don't need them uh, because you're not doing big plans. You're trusting the team is going to tell you the minimum they need to do it because they don't have to hold anything back because they know you'll help them right. when they actually need it, right? Just give me what I need when I need it. I'm not going to ask you for more. I'm not going to hoard it because I trust that we're going to just help each other here, right? Um, so that Agile now, if you look it up or do a current search, what you'll see is Agile is about flexibility, right? Yeah. So it has been completely redefined from this big empowerment exercise to now something which is just about flexibility. And, you know, the practical question is, first, we don't actually know that this contingent workforce is better. Yeah. Or you can say, yeah, okay, it's quicker to dial somebody off if you get a uh, a temp, let's say, work for you rather than an employee. You're paying the temp workers a lot more per hour because you're paying the administrative costs and the profit of the vendor who's providing it to you, right? So, yeah, you can turn them off faster. But, you know, companies don't seem to be having much trouble these days turning off their full-time employees either. Right. right. Um, it's not like it's hugely a burden for them, so they're not going to lay people off if they don't need them anymore. Right? And what we're also forgetting is that there are reasons why long-term employees are productive. They understand the organization. They understand how to get things done. They're committed to you in a way that other folks are not. And like when you bring in a contractor or something, right, an individual contractor, somebody's got to manage that person. Somebody's got to explain to them the things that a regular employee would know about how the place works. Somebody's got to write the contract up and make it binding enough, but not so binding that if it turns out you need something different, slightly different from the guy, that they can't hold you up. The way your painter does, if you say, oh, I want to change the color. I don't like this. Right. And they go, That's really going to That's not in my you. contract, right? Exactly. Yeah, yep. right. Yep. But we can make it happen. It's just going to cost you a ton of money. Well, that's the you classic know, in the employment agreement, right? And other duties as assigned, right? The catch-all right. comes in at the end, which don't, doesn't, I mean, I'm joking a little bit about it, but we don't see that in these contract relationships almost. Can't I've never written one with that included right. phrase. Yeah. Right. You can't do it because you, you, then they become an employee. Yeah. Right? Right. So this is an assertion. It's not that anybody has actually looked and, and found that these folks are cheaper, that it's cheaper to operate this way. It's an assertion. And it's an assertion because of these theory X kinds of views that as long as you could minimize the cost, it's going to be better. Yeah. And the problem with that is you're not looking at the contribution, right? It's like the problem on hiring, right? So most U.S. companies spend a lot of time trying to measure how much it costs them to hire, they're not looking at whether they're hiring good people with this process or not. You could drive your hiring costs down to zero if you don't care if they're any good. Right? right. So because we're only looking at the employment costs, we're not looking at the consequences. You know, that's the problem with this optimization thinking is we're not optimizing total performance. We're not even optimizing profits. We're just minimizing costs. And there's all kinds of ways that that could go wrong. I mean, I don't think you would want to go to a surgeon who says, look, we figured out how to give you the cheapest possible surgery here. We've <laughs> minimized the cost of all our tools. 
We're going to spend as little time as possible in the operating room right. with you. We're going to do this as cheaply as possible. You cool with that? You know, probably not. Yeah, let's get in and out of here as quickly as possible, right? And optimize our outcomes. And, and, and yeah, that's, I mean, I've even, you've even seen some of this in the medical field over time. Like I can, you know, recall talking to folks or people, you know, like, oh, this, you know, woman gave birth to a child and like nine hours later, I'm exaggerating a little bit. They want her, you know, to go yeah, home, right? It's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, so one of the examples um, you have in the, in the paper that I thought was super interesting because for whatever reason, I've been fascinating with uh, the trucking industry for a long time. We've done several shows on trucking, oddly enough, over the years. Some of them actually around, um, we can't find enough truck drivers, right? There, there's yeah. been periodic shortages of truck drivers in America over the they years. Don't yeah, it's... <laughs> Yeah. And, and but you have a great example about that job where you say it used to be a job where it was like the rugged individualist, that person who wanted to be out on the road, maybe not constrained by corporate politics or the office or even other people, quite frankly. Right. They just like that kind of individualism. But that technology and algorithms, et cetera, are really changing the nature of that particular job and other jobs like it. I, I wonder yeah. how you kind of came to that that particular example and why that one stood out to you. Well, it was uh, worked by some of my colleagues who've been uh, looking at what's happening inside these these trucks. But you know, one of the things that that uh, data science has made possible and the internet is collecting more information quickly and transmitting it in real time and back and forth. So, in a typical truck cab now, there are cameras that are watching the driver the whole time, and they tell the driver, "You must have both hands on the wheel." At all times, if the driver takes his hand off the wheel, or she does, then oh, you're in trouble on that. They lay out the route for them so that they don't make any decisions themselves. Right. They minimize left-hand turns because those take a little longer and they're more dangerous to do. But, you know, they take all the autonomy away from, from the driver. And so, you know, the problem with that is, you know, you're turning the driver into a robot a bit. And um, the problem with that is... The driver may know some things that are important to feedback to the company. Maybe they don't care anymore, right? Doesn't matter to them. So, you know, you've plotted the route out. I'm going to spend this much time here. You're telling me exactly to go here. Suppose I was just in the rest area and somebody told me that construction is going to start up there in 30 minutes. They're going to shut that road down. Right. Uh, exactly. It's not on my map. Um, and the algorithm is telling me to go there. Yeah, if I get paid by the hour, I suppose I'll just go there and wait, you know, put my feet up. I can't do anything anyway, but I'm going to be paid for this. What's my incentive to call the company and say, hey, the algorithm's wrong on this one? Right? Yeah. Or what's my incentive to say, you know, I hear a funny noise in the transmission. Uh, I wonder what I should do about that. Well, you know, the algorithm's watching all this stuff. <laughs> Let, let Sparky the robot take care right. of it. Right. If the sensor hasn't triggered appropriately to signal headquarters that there could be a maintenance issue, right, then why are you pulling off the road, right? Oh, I heard something funny, right? That's a great example. Yeah. yeah, I, should, yeah. I have a, a, even a dumb, a dumb example that might happen to me. I used to work for a really big company, right? That One of those companies, there were lots of people traveling all the time and you had to use their system, right, to book your travel, right? Which was fine. They had negotiated arrangements with all these carriers. I get all of that. And it's it was a significant cost uh, for this organization. But I recall, like uh, like many frequent travelers, right, I had the airline I'd like to fly and the hotel I'd like to stay in. And there's, I need to go into reasons why people who travel a lot like to fly on the same airline all the time. But the thing with this system was, if you chose 
the preferred airline, but there was another competing flight on some other airline, which was maybe $20 less expensive, say on a cross-country flight or 25, the threshold was pretty small. You had to go through some hoops, right, to get that that flight approved. And then at the same, then what I'm thinking though, okay, yes, it is 25 extra dollars that the company is spending. But then again, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to have a much better experience as a business traveler on the airline. I prefer, I'm going to get upgraded. I'm going to be treated nicely. <laughs> I'll go sit in the club where I can work probably like eat more easily as I wait for this flight, right? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the algorithm could never understand that and it required a conversation with somebody and i'm thinking about the, the salary level of that person that i had to have the conversation with in order to spend the 25 dollars. we just we wasted it all right and that, and that yeah well that's a great example of the problem with optimization is that we can only and this is a math problem you can only optimize on one variable at a time you can't optimize across a bunch of them and you know it is true that humans are cognitively limited too but you can make bigger mistakes uh, and you can make them at scale once you start with this optimization stuff, right? Yeah. And they're just so much more obvious, the mistakes that you could make, and they can be so much bigger when you're just optimizing on one thing, as you say, like, let's just get you the cheapest flight, right? Yeah. Um, and it turns out your flight's delayed because it's cheap for a reason. Nobody wants to fly those guys, right? Yeah. So all yeah. of those kinds of problems are, you know, this is penny wise and pound foolish is another way to yeah. say this. Uh, that's a this super, whole, that's yeah. a super example. I have one more thing, Professor, I wanted to ask you about, and you talk about this, some of this in the paper too. And I, I love your comments about how sort of this is a little bit of a pandemic thing, right? With, with every, uh, sort of the office worker kind of thing, the, you know, the knowledge worker, whatever term you'd like to use, but this stuff is not limited just to truck drivers and people working at retail stores, right? This is bleeding over in a big way into that type of work, uh, to office work, you know, knowledge work, and, and, and maybe not even more so because of all this work from home and a lot of organizations and managers having a reactionary thing. Oh my God, all my employees are at home. I don't know what they're doing. I've got to stay on top of that. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on what you're finding is happening there in terms of just kind of trying to optimize knowledge work and, and then in particular people working from home sort of in mass and for an extended period of time. Well, it's a very nice uh, example. You know, we're all living this experiment right now. I, I think you're at home. I'm at home right now too, right? Right. Uh, most of the people listening are probably going to be listening from home. And it illustrates quite nicely the theory X, theory Y choice. So, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think a lot of employers did this. They, If they were smart anyway, they said to their employees, look, we got to work for a moment. It's the only way we can keep running. We have to shut the building down. We need your help. Uh, and I think they discovered that a lot of employees, most of them, really pitched in, right? Uh, they figured out how to get the work done. They did all kinds of quirky things. They did the opposite of working to rule, as they used to say. They just mm -hmm. figured out how to make it work for their own equipment, their own schedule. They did it, right? The other approach is to say, I don't trust those people. I think they're watching Gilligan's Island the whole day. Um, so <laughs> right. we're going to monitor them, right? And so that is the new wave now. Um, and it's not clear what triggered it. It's not that Companies suddenly found out, oh my God, nobody's doing anything at home. They just started to get suspicious. And so it's the theory X wave now. And so it's a whole series of monitoring software that companies are putting in place and rolling out. Uh, some of it they had in their offices before, uh, but you know, monitoring your email, doing screenshots, keystrokes, counting keystrokes, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. And it changes the way you feel about your organization and it changes particularly your willingness 
to do that discretionary effort. Let's pitch in and help out. No, I'm not going to pitch in and help out if they're counting every keystroke I make. And, right. You know, they're watching me and you see employees starting to react, right? Like there's these studies showing huge numbers of employees tape over the camera on their mm-hmm. uh, off computer and they switch. They don't use the office phone when they're calling their colleagues and, you know, they're just log on to their personal laptops sitting next to them when they're goofing around. You know, there's all kinds of ways to trip up the monitoring, right? Yeah. And so if you're an employer, the question is, does that mean I just keep ramping my monitoring up? Is this a never-ending game? And unfortunately, it really comes down to the way the leaders think, yeah. right? And the problem that worries me is we've got a bunch of leaders, I think, in many cases, who just aren't aware of the whole alternative way of thinking about these things. They're not aware of the evidence on it. They're not aware of the research. They never learned it in school. They never saw it in the workplace. And they're just bringing this paradigm with them from their own engineering experience or their own financial modeling. And they're rolling it out into workplaces where it probably is not going to work. Uh, Peter, one last thing, and then uh, you know we'll let you go. The, everybody who listens to the show, or the vast majority, are HR people, right? And, and so they're being, as you said, they're getting constant phone calls from technology vendors. They might have a CEO with an engineering or finance background that's pushing hard on them to, to optimize, which is, you know, sometimes a a substitute word for reduce labor costs, right? Across the organization. What might be just one or two little pieces of advice you'd have for HR people who kind of philosophically agree with the premise here and and kind of some of the arguments you lay out in, in the paper, but are getting squeezed a little bit by kind of technology slash management kind of to, you know, go down this optimis, opti, optimization path a little bit more strongly? Yeah, I think the simple question you just ask, just one question, you say, can you show me evidence that this works? Yeah, that usually ends the conversation and because usually they can't show you evidence. And when they do show you evidence, it's typically not very relevant to what you care about. Like they might show you one little metric, but they don't show you the overall one. And if if you really want to go down that path, I think the next step is to say, okay, let's, we're willing to talk to you about doing this, but what we'd like to do is to structure the deal in such a way that we can see what the performance effects are overall before and after and make the deal contingent on that. You know, a lot of this software can be better than what we're doing before, particularly because in many parts of the organization, we've gutted so much competency out, what we're doing is not very good. Yeah. So it could very well be better. Um, and you don't want to just assume it's not going to work but neither do you want to buy the marketing pitch, right? And as we also know, even the employment law colleagues here, especially that simply the fact that it has worked for somebody else provides, you no protection that it works in your own company. It didn't discriminate against anybody else, protected groups in our sample company over here. Well, that doesn't help you in your company. So I would make the deal engine on evidence that it works for us. Yeah, that's a great point because the data set, the, the, the learning set of data is going to be different for every company, right? The AI, the AI tools all learn from data sets, but not everybody's data set is going to be the same. And so the outcomes can't be certainly guaranteed across um, different organizations. That's a super point. Peter, this has been a really, really fun conversation. I'm glad we were able to take some time today. I appreciate you uh, joining, on, joining us on the Happy Hour Show today. Good. Thank you, Steve. Pleasure awesome. So the article, once again, is Stop Over Engineering People Management. It's the cover story, Harvard Business Review, September, October 2020 issue. I highly recommend you read it. Get a copy of the magazine. Get get to it online. It's a super read. Um, uh, really, really good stuff. So, um, Peter, thanks so much again. We really appreciate you taking the time. 
My pleasure. May I suggest to you just drop that copy on your CEO's desk? There you go. Good idea. I will do the same. Okay. Now, so uh, thanks for listening to the Happy Hour Show. I do want to thank our friends at WorkHuman and Paychecks once again. Thanks for all their support. Uh, my name's Steve Bose. Thanks for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we will see you next time. And bye for now.